Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. Today, we're discussing the most recent indictment of Donald Trump covering his actions leading up to January 6th and his attempt to retain the presidency. I'm your host, Tom Church. And as always, I'm joined by the Libertarian Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, at this point, you are also uh, an expert at commenting on uh, President, former President Trump's indictment cases, because we have the third indictment uh, to talk about. I've had a lot of practice on all of this stuff. And I think what you could say, it looks like a geometric progression. Uh, the first of these indictments by Bragg is better forgotten and removed. It was a reach and an extravagance and foolishness. Mm -hmm. uh, the second indictment on obstruction with respect to the papers is, in fact, probably a valid cause of action. And the defense that you're going to hate is, well, he may have showed doctrines, documents to somebody, but they didn't read them. And he never got anything get out of the room. And those are mitigation defenses, but they're not absolute defenses. There's the comparison to Hillary Clinton stuff was probably stolen live time because she had this makeshift server and was given a lot of very kind leeway, which should not have happened. Uh, but my guess is a conviction on that count is probably justified, having looked at the evidence. Uh, this one, uh, this is the Grand Slam home run. And there's a fourth one, which I regard as less consequential, but nonetheless, backing up this one. But this particular case, I mean, you start reading this thing, it looks like an all-American horror show about Donald Trump. And you go through the narrative and you say to yourself, this is a prosecutor who knows how to write a complaint. Uh, the first thing you note about this complaint is it's very lean and thin on the law. They have a couple of paragraphs at the beginning, one of them having to do with defrauding of honest services. And uh, usually that requires that you take something tangible from somebody uh, by swindle. So they give it to you voluntarily having been deceived. And the word voluntarily is put into quotes. Uh, but that's not what this case is about. This case is about uh, subordinating an election and trying to take, steal something. And it goes in two ways. It's the endless joy boning of Donald Trump with respect to anybody and everybody in conspiracy with the five people who were listed by number, all of whom have been identified in the New Yorker. So it's not as though you're talking about great mysteries on this. Um, and then there's the very specific scheme to try to get a fake slate of electors out there uh, so that you could go back to your state legislature and say, appoint these people people. Uh, there is, by the way, some very disturbing law on this. Uh, let me just mention it to you because it's not mentioned here. Uh, what it says, in effect, is that the legislature uh, shall select essentially the electors by whatever matter it wants. And there's always been a silent and absolutely ironclad provision which says you pick two schemes of electors when the election comes out. The legislature appoints that one which has got the majority of votes. Well, in this particular case, they're going to argue, well, if you could make it as you determine, you could just change the rules of the game after the election has been won and decide that this ersatz slate of seven people or whatever is the one that ought to be prevailed. If you look at the text, I mean, it's not at all clear that this is illegal. If you look at the context in the history, it's clear that if you adopt that particular position, it's the end of democracy as we know it. And so like everything else here, you've got a fairly specific provision and its enforcement depends upon comedy and shared understandings about the silent implicit premises that it raises. And in this particular case, there's no doubt about it. And in fact, 
fact, uh, the Trump people are alleged, and I can't prove this, uh, to have said to people, we won't use your names on the electors unless we secure some kind of legal victory in court prior to that time. And then they went ahead and they used those things to begin with. I mean, that itself is such a kind of a monstrous idea uh, to put forward against this kind of history uh, that I can't think of anything offhand uh, that would excuse that. And then, of course, there's the second half, uh, Donald Trump jawboner, right? And, you know, one is tempted, at least at times, to say, well, the man is known occasionally to engage in certain hyperbole. Everybody will discount what he's going to say. So it's not nearly as harmful as it sounds. The problem about this is it's just much too specific in terms of what's being stated. And even if you put aside character assassination of people like Jack Smith, who will ignore it? Uh, the famous uh, discussion with the Secretary of State in Georgia wasn't just find me the votes, which could be read. Uh, there were a lot of votes missing in Atlanta, and I want you to go back and find those votes so as to get the true count. But then he says, and if you don't get this, then I think you're going to be subject to criminal charges for dereliction of duty. Well, all of a sudden, what seems to be a request now becomes a threat, and the threat probably becomes something that's actionable. And Donald Trump's ability to have hyperbole uh, means that virtually everything he says when it's put in context doesn't seem better. It seems worse uh, than it otherwise was. And so what he has to do is to try to dig himself out of a very deep hole with a very small little spade in his pinky hand is to figure out how it is he can kind of come back on this stuff. Frankly, um, I could tell you and probably should talk about this, how I would mount the Trump defense. Uh, but uh, I'm telling you how I would mount the Trump failed defense is probably a better description of what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, let's actually start with the one I think that maybe has the most chance to be able to defend. It's the first count. This is to fraud the United States. It's related to making false statements. And there's been a lot of commentary here on Maybe this wasn't this one isn't so strong because it's actually a First Amendment issue. You're the, the Jack Smith actually even concedes in here. You know, Donald Trump was it's well within his rights to to protest, just to, to say out loud these things. Yeah. But then they go and spend, I don't remember, 20 pages or so expressing here are all the ways he was told over and over and over by his own staff, by uh, by friendly uh, uh, state uh, you know election officials that these things are not true. And yet he continued to. Yeah, continue to repeat them. So how how do you how do you make that? Defense? The problem with the honest for, honest services claim is what's the service? What's he trying to get out of this? He's trying to get himself reelected to the presidency of the United States. It's not as though he's trying to con people into giving him various kinds of monies, contracts, or privileges in some sort. And so they may have to fight on all of that. I regard it as a detail that. This is a, a suspect count because there's no proof that you have received tangible benefits that comes when you're dealing with other counts. And so all of the case law, which cuts back on the honest services claims and starting from some of the Enron and similar disputes is not going to play much of a role here. And, and my guess is if I were the prosecutor, I would just hone in on the two things I mentioned, the fraudulent jawboning of the general nature that you had there, which is so repetitive and so forth, uh, that he has to be literally blind or deaf or some combination of the two if he doesn't realize how the winds are going against him. And the other one is setting up the fake set of electors. And I think, in effect, these are very, very difficult charges for him uh, to get rid of. And so I could tell you what I would do if I were trying to defend against this, but I'm not telling you this because I think it's the road for success. I'm telling you, I think what Trump has got to do 
um, is to not, I don't think he has a defense of innocence. I think he has a defense of mitigation of damages, which in the end won't amount to very much. But uh, the first thing you want to start with, what were the conditions of the election that took place in 2020? And there was a huge amount of uncertainty that went on. COVID does not fit very much into this environment, right? But as we all know, everybody made changes in the election rules at every conceivable level to take into account the inability of people to get to the polls, the need to have various places where you could drop off ballots and stuff like that. And one could make a very credible claim that these things are open invitations for fraud because the chain of custody is not fully established as these things go from one place to another. And somebody can say, look, we know that in a typical situation, if you send out home ballots, 10% uh, of them are going to be returned because the person has died, they've moved somewhere else, they just don't pick it up. And somebody can gather those ballots and mark them off. And maybe somebody can prove, and there have been allegations of this sort, I don't defend them saying, look, there are many ballots that came in, uh, which were essentially marked only at the presidential level, which suggests that they could be fake, or that 100% of the ballots from a very pro-Biden district came in for Biden, which is absolutely is virtually almost a negligible possibility of happening, if in fact, even 4% of the voters um, are pro-Trump, because you've got 100 draws from the urn, and 96 of them are uh, for the Democrat, and 96 point nine six to the hundredth power is a very small number and so you just can't make it now you could do things like that but you have to pick your jurisdiction you have to find some way to do it and what you can't do is to sort of make this claim with this wild house right stuff saying well the machines themselves were corrupted can he do this well he's over 32 in the courts so people say okay epstein we know that you're a basically somewhat doubtful about the election. Let's assume I am. My view is what you do is you get Mr. Uh, this, Mr. McCarthy to convent this special committee uh, to review this stuff to see how you reform voting practices. You don't try to tie the uh, reversal of decision on very thin grounds uh, to what's going on there. What you say is, I think they're concerns. And then if you raise them in that context, it may have some prophylactic effect on future elections and the way they go. But they didn't do that. But there is that kind of uncertainty. And Trump can say it was all of that that drove him. The problem is he never made all of these arguments in their correct form early on. So he's now trying to do an ex post rationalization. My view is he may be able to get something out of it. The second thing he could do is he could look some of the decisions and they were wrong. Uh, it's the most famous one, uh, the Jones Day decision, where they challenged the Pennsylvania decision to extend the deadline beyond what the legislature had status on the basis of some uh, genuine position about the right to have free and fair election. That's just pure craziness as far as I'm concerned. They shouldn't have extended the time, but you still have to prove causation or prove that is it's outcome determinative is the phrase that they use. And it's very hard to know whether you can do that. So it's a little bit difficult in that particular way. And it's also the question is, uh, you, that gets you one, but what about all these other cases? And it's just very, very difficult. So you have to basically go through each of the 32 cases that you lost and try to uh, extract some nugget of things that you should have won. And then when you do it, as far as I'm concerned, well, that means you have a right to holler, uh, go to court, but 
by the time you get to the convening in December, the state conventions in early January, what's going on, all of this stuff is water under the bridge. And I just don't think that it's going to sway anybody. So my own view about this is that he will try to raise these things. Um, he will try to argue that he actually believed all this stuff at some level. Um, and my guess is he may well do it. Uh, but is that evidence of the fact that he's a deranged mind? Or is it evidence of the fact that he has an unparalleled sophistication in the understanding of human affairs and human motivation? <laughs> and I think if you were to put it to a fair mind group, and uh, let's say you had a 1000 people on it, the vote would be 999 to one. And that one might be Trump himself. I, I just can't see what the line is in this particular case that he's going to be able to do to defend himself. Disqualifying individual witnesses won't do very much, even if you can do it, because there are going to be a whole line of people lining up in one way or another to say that he was as terrible as he was. Uh, I'm just thinking about myself. You know, my position on Trump is uh, I might have voted him for president, uh, certainly in 2020, um, before all this happened. Uh, but what happens is that I don't think he had the character. And I, you know, raised my lonely voice to ask him to resign, if you remember when, in January or February 2017. With, it was less than a month in office. And by the way, I want to claim credit on this. I thought that Trent Pence was always a straight up shooting guy. Um, notwithstanding the fact that one of the things that many Democrats did was to try to paint him in, with the Trump brush, right? Right. And I, that was one of the great scandals of all times. He's never been like that. This is a man who's had governor experience. He's been in the Congress. He was trained by Mitch Daniels. He stood up under really great pressure because it's quite clear that this was not one you know, passing mm -hmm. remark by Trump saying, gee, isn't it nice for you to blow up this election? He was pushing him all the time and uh, Pence just did not budge. So, I mean, he's the hero of this story, right? It's not Nancy Pelosi. Um, and I think he did exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. And, and I think that basically all the Democrats who started to call him some kind of a weasel should write him a formal note of apology saying they misjudged his character, which they certainly did. Um, and, you know, I think he's presidential material. Uh, it's very clear that, you know, Ron DeSantis is in this terrible position. Uh, he has to take on the Trump uh, sort of mantra, his go for his people, but he can't attack the pension. A president who's, I think, is basically standing with his own group is probably, if anything, stronger now that the third indictment has come down than it was beforehand. And he's just an impossible mm -hmm. position. Unless you, uh, as my favorite political advisor, can tell what Mr. DeSantis can do to keep alliance with some of the Trump policies and manage to separate himself from the man. And I just don't know how to do that. I don't I don't think there's anything there, Richard, right? I mean, it's so long as Trump is there, they're not going to leave him for, for DeSantis. Yeah. I, I will say, Richard, um, uh, Pence did say uh, on your note, you know, I mean, he held up on January 6th to incredible pressure. And when this indictment dropped, he did release a statement saying, it seems clear from this indictment that Donald Trump should not be president again, is not presidential material. So, I mean, it's an, it's a quite an astonishing thing for a former vice president to come out and say that. Uh, about, yeah, my reaction uh, is, thank God he said it. My other reaction, he's a little bit more than six years too late. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's, it's one of these strange things. I mean, I've used, particularly with Troy Senek, the phrase all the time of Trump a la carte. Remember that phrase? <laughs> I do. And so what you do is you get a Trump policy. 
and it could be anywhere on the scale from one to 10. And then when you decide where that one goes, you get the next one coming down and it could be from one to 10. And there's no relationship on the score that you give for proposal number one to the score that you want to give on proposal number two. Um, and in many cases, he's right. In some cases, his worst moves were sounding like Hillary Clinton on the Jap on the on the China paid packs and things like that. Uh, so, I mean, and then when he tries to browbeat these various businesses to um, states to open open up plants and so forth. The Lordstown plant, remember that big episode? The plant that he uh, touted as being put into place just went bankrupt again. I mean, so, you know, he's basically a guy who's kind of got this populist mentality uh, that matches very badly with his free market instinct. And so you never know when you have a given thing, which one is going to start to come out. Um, with the Democrats, you know, they're always going to make the wrong choice. But with Trump, He'll make the wrong choice 50 or 60% of the time. And then occasionally he will see through things that the Democrats miss. He was right on the climate stuff in Paris. He was right on not doing business with the Iranian. Um, I think those two things, when the Biden changed them, were major miscalculations in foreign affairs. Um, and so you got to give the guy credit. He was the only guy who figured out how to break the impasse in the Middle East. We hope it doesn't come down with the Abraham records. The deal which says, you renounce all permanent claims to the West Bank and we'll get you some recognition deals with Arab nations, including at the end of the day, maybe Saudi Arabia, was a great diplomatic triumph. And it's now being trashed by the Democrats. And Biden, of course, is absolutely terrible on his Arab-Israeli relationships and so forth. But I mean, so Trump sits there and you, you, you do you see real high points and real disasters. And you know, how do you evaluate a president? Well, you have to put weights to each of these things and have to put numerical coefficients and people are going to come up with very different sums. That's why when you want to collapse policy alternatives into choices over candidates, you've got 15 different issues on which you could give 15 different ratings. And the only thing that you have at the line at the end is yes or no, or maybe abstain, right? And so it is a perpetual mathematical certainty that people who have agreement on each of the individual issues can easily differ on their final judgments depending upon the weight that they give to certain things and how they calculate it. So the extreme version is the one issue voter, right? I only care about gun control. Well, you can figure that guy out, but then you get 15 other guys who treat that as anywhere between eighth and 14th on their list. And you can't quite figure out how it is that the whole thing's going to come to bear. And so, I mean, I hope Trump withdraws from this or gets, you know, gets convicted. This I do not regard as a vendetta. I regard the Bragg cases of vendetta um, and so forth. And I think he would do a great service if he simply said, I'm going to hold my case in abeyance so these other cases can go forward, um, rather than trying to push on something which will get Trump some sympathy and probably an acquittal. Well, Richard, I want to finish with some rapid fire questions. There's still a lot to talk about, um, but just see if I can't get a short answer from you here. Um, first, I do want to go back to this uh, this conspiracy to send in fake electors in order to, uh, I guess, cause questions about the the veracity of the uh, um, of the electoral count um, in certain states, so that Pence could disqualify them and then make Trump the winner. Is this one where even if he thinks it were legal, right? There are some things where it's against the law, and even if you think it's not against the law, it's against the law. Is this is this account where it doesn't matter what his state of mind was, it's still an illegal action, and so you so he's going to get in trouble? 
Look, I, I think the argument that he's going to make is I have John Eastman's interpretation of the 12th Amendment, right. which says that opening ballots in front of somebody else is not a ministerial act. And I believe that that was true mm -hmm. and so forth. But that does not justify, as far as I can see, an effort to try and send a fake ballot into somebody else right. to get the legislature to change its particular tune. Um, if there were, in fact, two independent counts that had taken place quite into from any particular controversy, and both of these people want to be seated, then you have a genuine dispute. But this is not that kind of a case. So I think, in effect, that uh, uh, that legal defense is irrelevant to him. It would be relevant to what you think about Eastman and his prospects of success. But mm -hmm. I don't think it, he's got a leg to stand on on that one. In fact, I mean, it's so horrifying because just ask the question: If Joe Biden did it, could anybody else do it? And the answer is you always can. As I mentioned to you at the beginning, this notion that you set the rules of the game before the election and not afterwards, it is not dictated by the selection clauses mm -hmm. in Article 2 on the executive, uh, but has been dictated by an absolute uniform set of practices, and those practices have to be respected. That's why there is a strong sense in which this is not a written constitution. It's not that you don't have written stuff there, but the point I'm talking about is when can the legislature make up its mind is not resolved by that text, but then you get 250 years of or 20 years of normal practice on this stuff that has to be decisive. Right. How about this? Um, the co-conspirators are mentioned throughout. Uh, like you mentioned, it was very obvious to pick out who almost all of them were. They're not running for president right now. They don't have that political cover. What's the likelihood that some or all of them end up behind bars? Oh, I can't say that. I mean, the first thing is, is he going to indict? Uh, okay. And, and I think what's really going on here is a standard strategy, which says, I'm going to talk to these guys. And if you start giving me some juicy tidbits, I, I will negotiate some kind of a plea with you, okay. which may or may not include jail time. But uh, the parameters of this stuff, given the case that he seems to have out and the level of detail and the numerosity of the conversations that he's reporting to, is it's very unlikely that a deal will mean a Essentially, you walk unless you get David Weiss back from the uh, Hunter Biden situation to take this over. <laughs> um, I think, in effect, what they're negotiating for is reductions in the severity of sentences. And that suggests that some of them will, in fact, probably turn. Uh, some of them will probably go to jail, uh, but they will get less severe sentences if they cooperate than if they do not. Uh, but my guess is that the reason he put them in there in forms, which makes it so easy to identify them, is there going to be some anguished conversations at a private level with each of these five individuals uh, to see the way in which it goes. And look, Smith is no fool. He's done this much more than I have. What you say is, as you do in all antitrust cases, the first guy who comes to the gate gets the best deal. The guy who comes fifth gets nothing at all, right? And so what you're trying to do is to create a race that people will start to turn quickly. And you may get five people making simultaneous offers, at which point you're probably going to have to discount a little bit what each of them get. Uh, but if I was Smith, and if I were the prosecutor, and if I felt as strongly as he did, and as strongly as the American people seem to feel, at least much of them on this issue, uh, there would not be a huge amount to give that would come from anything other than a complete abject acknowledgement of guilt coupled with some kind 
of reduction in the sentence. I mean, it's a very hard position to start to be in. Now look, they did this in an amateurish way in trying to figure out who's the third guy you're going to get with the presidential papers in Mar-a-Lago, right? And they find somebody else who moved the boxes. Well, now just ask yourself the question, is some lowly low life or who moves these poor boxes in response to the question of the president. Is that the kind of witness that just like um, senior advisors to a president who had been constantly with him uh, for periods of weeks or perhaps even months trying to part this campaign? And you know that these are much bigger fish than they have in the other case. And so as far as I can see, I mean, my view is that if I were the Biden administration or who's ever running this, this show, uh, this would be exhibit A. And you would want to slow down on both the other kinds of prosecutions. This is the one you want to come first. And, you know, look, there's another point which I think is very true. It's intolerable to see how a man who's going to be, what, he's now 76 years old, right? Um, born 1946. No, 77. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, how we can manage to defend four major lawsuits and try to become president of the United States is just not possible. Um, he would do an immense public service. He would just renounce the particular offer. There are many people who says he likes talking about being president. He likes running for president. He likes insulting people. It's not so clear he actually likes doing the administrative work of being a president. Um, but I think his fear is that the moment he decides to pull out of the campaign, he's going to be unprotected. There'll be no reluctance to go after him. And he's likely to get a stronger sentence than he would have if he sort of soldiered through where people might be somewhat uneasy about the fact uh, that this man could A, go to jail and be elected president on the same day. Remember, he's not running against some kind of strong stud. He's running against a thoroughly weak, totally incompetent, completely suspect man himself. And so uh, there are different kinds of offenses and different kinds of problems with them. But you see, you know what the last vote was. It was 43-43 undecided, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not a vote of confidence for anybody. Because my guess is if you actually had a situation where either of them were put up against a serious candidate from the other party, they would both be whomped. Right. And my view is they both should withdraw uh, from this situation in the interest of the republic. This is the source of some genuine anxiety and so forth. And so here's a question to leave the audience with. Um, Donald Trump now announces that he's not going to run for president and he's going to withdraw from political life. And you say, let's just forget about these offenses because the greater harm to avoid is more important and treat of it as kind of a pardon. Or do you say, now that this guy is there, we really have to make an example of him because he's been so thoroughly corrupt. I don't know what people are going to start to say. My guess is they'll slip. Now, there's an old maxim. Parents love each other. They love their children. When they have a nice child, they fight to figure out who gets to take the kid to the ball game or to the music lesson. Uh, but when you have a bad child, the question is, do you discipline them by uh, spanking them, sending them to their room, sending them off to military school? It's always the case of dealing with crazy, inadequate people like Trump. And that basically makes honest people despair of coming to some form of a unified solution. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. As always, you can learn more if you head over to Richard's column, The Libertarian, which we publish on defining ideas at hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking or informative, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next time.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.